Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you, finally back with you after we've been away for the last couple of weeks here uh, due to scheduling conflicts, due to there being a national holiday here where we are in Canada. So we were off in observance of those factors, but we are back with you now, and that's all that matters. So welcome back once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you here on this program. And it's going to be a fine program. I can feel it in my bones. Yes, absolutely. And uh, as always, I'm the second voice in this program. This week, I'm Dennis, the man who can't help but can't help but feel like we're all currently living in a fever dream of a 1980s teenage sci-fi enthusiast. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful of a username or uh, a nickname this week, but um, yeah, yeah. What are you What are you trying to convey and get across with all that? Well, you know, we've been talking about, you know, crypto and NFTs and stuff quite a lot, and it just, and that's, spoiler alert, that's continuing on in a couple of minutes, I'm just going to say that, but it really, yeah, I, I can't help but think, like, if any of us would have read, you know, about what Bitcoin is 20, 30 years ago in a book, we probably would have went, well, no one would go for that, sounds insane. Right? It does sound insane. The, the whole premise just uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. A, a decentralized currency? What? Well, not what? just a decentralized currency. You're mining numbers. You're basically crunching numbers on a computer to an unknown end for all intents and purposes. And then at the end of wasting a bunch of electricity, you get some money out of it somehow, I guess. But like, you know, make sure you don't lose the file because that's your wallet. And if you lose the file somewhere, that's your money gone forever. And there's no possible way to recover it. Yeah, I'd say it's, uh, there are, so, there are some, uh, some plot holes in there. You could drive a truck through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here, here we are. I mean, Bitcoin's a thing. NFTs are now a thing. <laughs> we have all these weird, like Pete, like, the gig-based economy has basically been taken to its most logical conclusion. Well, no, I would even say illogical conclusion. Like, it's gone so far beyond anything that people can even really make jokes of that now it's just kind of sad. I mean, yeah. Yeah, this is... We uh, in weird times. Yeah, weird times. This is uh, not quite a utopian future that may have been envisioned in uh, sci-fi from decades ago. But uh, here we are, we're all living in it, and uh, it's not just you and I, it's, uh, it is everyone, because no doubt any channel you turn to, any webpage you come across, any conversation you have, or any sort of feed you read, you're inevitably going to come across something talking about NFTs, blockchain, Bitcoin, maybe it's just updates on the price of a Bitcoin uh, at that current moment in time, maybe it's uh, some new blockchain technology, or some new company trying to cash in on the blockchain, or... Uh, some piece of NFT that sold for a stupid amount. So, or, or something stupid being sold as an NFT, as we'll talk about in a couple minutes here. You know, the, it's kind of hard to uh, avoid and be ignorant of these new tech buzz terms that seem to have been dominating the first several months of this calendar year. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And and the fun thing is, none of us really know where it's all going to go, what it's all leading to. Who knows? No. Um, 
<laughs> All we know is that a lot of money is at stake. A lot of real money. And I say that very, you know, snarkily because, you know, I, I don't, I still don't view these cryptocurrencies as real currencies. I mean, you know, it's like the joke of like, if they were real currencies, we would just call them currencies, right? Rather than like having to have add the crypto distinction. That's you know, true. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the thing of like, you know, what would you call alternative medicine if it actually worked? Medicine, you know? <laughs> like it would just like, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> we're probably going to raise the ire of some, you know, people that are real enthusiasts for it. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just not on board. I think uh, our positions and stands on these uh, res- respective uh, new tech buzz terms that have been dominating the news cycle for the last several months, uh, we've been clear in our feelings about them for quite a while here. Uh, we don't understand them, we don't get them, and uh, perhaps don't see what some other people are seeing. Yeah, and uh, and when you say we don't understand them, it's not that we don't, like we're not capable of understanding like, you know, the, the intricacies of, you know, what these technologies are involved in. It's more, I think it's more of just a fundamental, I don't understand how it got as popular as it did rather than I don't understand the technology. You know, frankly, I don't fully understand as I'm sure most people don't really understand what the point of crypto is when you step back and look at the 10,000 foot view of it. Right? Like, do you understand the point of what crypto is doing? Uh, no. Uh, and I, I, I have an idea of how it works, but that doesn't mean I, I quite understand the, the point of it all, uh, through all of this. I, I know that it's worth a lot of money to some people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to understand it any better, uh, than if it was worth not as much money. It's, it, it's, it's voodoo and hokum to me. Like tech-based voodoo and tech-based hokum. Yeah, I mean, is the best I can come up with at this point in time. Yeah, but I'm, that I'm sure there that that won't stop some people from getting into like you know technical details about why it's good for security and why it's this and why it's that and that's all great. If you can put that into a way that matters or put it into something more tangible for me, then I might be on board. But at where we're currently at, you're literally just like, you're turning a computer on, you're wasting a bunch of electricity, and at the end of it, you might end up with some amount of some file that might be worth some real world money. That's what it looks like from the outside right now. And, and just that basic premise of uh, you get up, you turn on your computer or a computing rig, and you just leave it on and you leave it running, drawing uh Depending on the size, uh, you know, a bit of power or a fairly uh, respectable amount of electricity, this flies in the face of of the sensibilities I was brought up with of if you're done in a room, turn the light off. Are you yeah. done with that? Turn the TV off. Done with the computer? Shut it down. Like, you're, you're just turning on a computer and walking away and wasting a bunch of electricity? Why? Yeah. No, like, I think there is, like, a little bit of a distinction we can draw here, at least – like between crypto and NFTs. On the one hand, you know, I, I don't fully understand, you know, the ins and outs of NFTs, but at, on the surface, it does actually seem a little bit more of a tangible thing. You're, you know, you're purchasing an NFT, you're potentially supporting an artist directly, and you're getting a uniquely, 
a unique version of a thing that can be kind of like identified as the unique version of the thing because like if you're buying a file, you know that like, okay, this is the version of the file at this timestamp. It's been authenticated. It's been validated. I'm the one that bought it. You know, it, it cuts down on like art fraud and stuff as well. Like I'm sure like through the years is the version of the Mona Lisa that we even see technically even the real version. Who knows? Is there any real way to verify that at this point? I don't know. At least with NFTs, I kind of get it. It doesn't mean I also understand how some things or why some things have made the amount of money that they have made. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, maybe this is as good a time as any to kind of jump into the ludicrous leadoffs because yeah. we've been talking about NFTs and crypto a lot and NFTs are sort of the focus of this ludicrous leadoff block this week. And I say block because there are two things we'll be talking about. Um, the first one being that Fox, you know, Fox, the television company, which has been recently purchased by Disney, uh, they're launching their own NFT company to sell digital collectibles of Dan Harmon's new show. Dan Harmon, in case you're not aware of who he is, he is sort of like, he's in many ways, I would consider him sort of like a pioneer of internet like video because before YouTube, he had a thing called channel one Oh one, I believe it was called that sort of launched the careers. Well, specifically the career of one person who most people in, you know, the comedy world know now as sort of like, De uh, Justin Roiland. Uh, and if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, all I need to say is two words, Rick and Morty. Uh, I believe that's three yeah, words. He, yeah. Sorry. Rick, comma, Morty. Thank you. Yes. With, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyways, Dan Harmon created the avenue for that, but also has made a couple of TV shows of his own, like community. Um, but also co-created Rick and Morty with, uh, Justin Roiland, etc. Among being involved with like a few other things like Dan Harmon, you know, he's been around, but he's, he makes TV shows, but Fox, as I said, is jumping into this NFT world to sell merch based on this new show, that Dan Harmon is, I don't even think it's, it, it, I think it's in development, but I don't know how far along it is right now. It's in development. I believe it's uh, probably going to premiere either this fall or next winter. Uh, but the new show that Dan Harmon is working on for Fox is called Crapopolis. And it's uh, basically about dysfunctional life uh, set in ancient Greek and uh, uh, basically be a mythical version of ancient Greek with, you know, uh, well, a Dan Harmon slash Rick and Morty version of the gods, the monsters, uh, mythical humans uh, of that era. Uh, and that is the the content generator, which will have assets then put up for sale as NFTs done through this new Fox NFT company called Blockchain Creative Labs. <laughs> good, good name, Fox. That's... Uh, High on the creativity list, right there. Yeah, so... So, so Fox, I, I don't know if the show is being developed specifically so it can have NFTs sold off the side of it. Um, I don't know uh, if there's other ones. I'd imagine there will be other properties that Fox is developing for broadcast on their channels, on their networks, that will have assets sold through this company as well, but... 
Yeah, uh, I, I kind of feel like this is the, the new modern tech day equivalent of uh, the dog chasing its tail. Yeah, so the one phrase that I find the most kind of funny to come out of all of this is apparently um, this Crapopolis show, as they put out in, I guess, uh, like during Fox's Upfront, which I guess is a presentation put on for advertisers to get a sneak peek at upcoming shows, they say that Crapopolis will be, and I quote, curated entirely on the blockchain, end quote. And the the thing I find amusing about this is I don't think anyone actually knows what that means (laughs) because they weren't clear with what that means. So like they, they went on to say, and I quote, not to go too far into it today, but as an advertiser focused artist first and animation obsessed company, Fox is going to take advertisers into the world of blockchain powered tokens, including NFTs and Dan series currently titled, uh, Crapopolis will be the first ever curated entirely on the blockchain. And just as we're doing this for our own animation, we will also help your brands connect directly with fans and enthusiasts through NFTs with and for you. Fox will help art meet brands, meet technology. End quote. So to me, that sounds a lot like a marketing person who is basically given the gist of something and told to run with it. Uh, and they did their best. Yeah, they they did their best, but I don't think they actually said anything. Like, no, but are, that, like, that's quite that's quite the word salad they they spewed out. Yeah. So to me, when I hear curated entirely on the blockchain, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, like. <sighs> What is their plan? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, I'm so far removed from this technology. It did, this whole NFT thing, it really popped up really fast. I'm just going to say that. Even if it's, you know, been slowly brewing over the past couple of years, a couple of years for a massive new technology to, you know, go through sort of development and release is still really damn fast. And I don't know what the point of any of this is. We already have files we can view on our computers for free. Like, are these animated GIFs? Are they like JPEG files? Are they like, like, what are these? Because we can view those for free. Are they trying to say the value is just, this is one that we directly created and you have the first instance of it? Like how, But you still, like, I've seen, like, there's these crypto NFT marketplace things that have pictures of these things that you can get still. So I'm still seeing a picture of it, and I didn't have to pay for it. What am I, so what am I getting out of this? (laughs) I don't, I, I literally don't understand, and I haven't seen an explanation that satisfies the core question of what? And unfortunately, I don't think you're going to get a good satisfactory answer to the question of what. Uh, this seems like an attempt on the part of Fox to really cash in on something that's all the rage these days, and that's blockchain and NFTs. And how are they going to do it? With uh, someone who's, uh, or one half of the hit show, Rick and Morty, because that's what the kids are into these days, too. But what I find kind of funny, like, so we saw this broad, uh, you know, across our radar 
on Gizmodo, gizmodo.com, uh, uh, in an article written by Matt Novak, he included a quote where, you know, he said, still confused about what an NFT might be. The single best explanation anyone has given, uh, was on Tumblr. And bear with me for a second. It's a little bit long. All right. This, this, you know, I think is what it is. And they say, um, imagine if you want to, uh, went up to the Mona Lisa and you were like, I'd like to own this. And someone nearby went, give me $65 million now burn down an unspecified amount of the Amazon rainforest in order to give you this receipt of purchase. So you paid them and they went, here's your receipt. Thank you for your purchase. And went to an unmarked supply closet in the back of the museum and posted a handmade label inside it behind the brooms that said Mona Lisa currently owned by Jacob Galapagos. So if anyone wants to know who owns it, they'd have to find this specific closet in this specific hallway and look behind the correct brooms. And you went, can I take the Mona Lisa home now? And they went, Oh God, no, are you stupid? You only bought the receipt that says you can own, that says you own it. You didn't actually buy the Mona Lisa itself. You can't take the real Mona Lisa, you idiot. You can take this though and give you the replica print in a cardboard tube that's sold in the gift shop. Also, the person selling you the receipt of purchase has at no point in time ever owned the Mona Lisa. Unfortunately, if this doesn't really make sense or seem like any logical person would be happy about this exchange, then you've understood it perfectly. <laughs> so before I read this, that kind of was what my understanding of block of this whole NFT was. And unfortunately, if this is the best explanation we can, I, I mean, I'm jokingly saying this, of course, in jest, but this is sort of not far off from explanations of what NFT is that I've read. And I totally don't get it. Hundred. It's again. You're not owning a physical thing. You're paying money just to say you own a physical thing without owning the physical thing. And, and even then, the thing you might be owning is not physical, but a digital asset, as as you mentioned earlier, like a GIF, a JPEG, perhaps some sort of uh, video file or whatnot that will still exist on the internet. Yeah, that other people can view freely on YouTube or something. Like, it, like, what are you, like? And in selling it, they showed it already. <laughs> These marketplaces have a picture of the picture. <laughs> That's my point. It's like, <laughs> I've already seen the picture. <laughs> like, this is the, this is a digital picture. <laughs> what am I buying then? <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm reminded, I'm flashing back in my, my mind in my memory banks now to years and years ago, I believe in uh, malls in the 90s, uh, there would be kiosks that I came across, perhaps you did too, if not, uh, maybe some of, our listener, some of our listeners out there did, but there would be people, businesses set up that would uh, be there to sell you pieces of the moon. And not just, <laughs> not moon rocks, not any sort of moon dust, but ownership entitlements to lots of the moon. <laughs> and you would pay your thirty five ninety nine or whatever the price may have been at that point, and you would get some sort of little certificate of ownership saying that yes, you own this piece of the moon here at these coordinates and whatnot. So yes, you are the owner of this piece of moon, and you're like yay, and you paid a certain amount of money and you got that certificate and you. you treated it, perhaps rightfully, as a novelty thing, because that's as far as it went, because you'd never actually go see the piece of moon you quote-unquote owned. And even then, if you did, you're not going to be able to stop anyone from looking at your piece of the moon, because the moon's right there. Anyone can look at the moon. Yeah. So, this strikes me as being very similar to that. 
to to the the shysters and hucksters who would try and sell you pieces of the moon or yeah. ownership of the moon. I'd say, or even like, you know, the pet rock craze or anything like that. But unlike this, those are still tangible things. If, for example, they, they did have the right to sell you portions of the moon, if ever you did somehow someday have the ability to visit the moon because, you know, all of a sudden they're offering space elevator service or there's some sort of crazy futuristic thing we haven't anticipated of, you know, getting people from Earth to the moon. If ever you could walk on the moon, given your coordinates, you could actually physically go there and say, hey, this square foot is mine. This is the part that I own. Cool, I can see it. I'm standing on it right now. Great. There's at least that sort of idea there of a physical thing. Now, now the legality of those kiosks, like I remember those as well. Like, I don't, I think it's questionable at best that someone could sell you a, like some portion of the moon. Like that's ridiculous. Like I'm sure no one, like whoever actually owns the moon is going to be the first person to get up there and actually stake out a claim and defend it. That's who owns the moon. Like realistically, like. <laughs> Like, America got up there, but they're not defending that. I mean, if, you know, some super intelligent race of space aliens with crazy guns came by and just blew the whole thing up, what are they going to do? Sorry, America, you don't actually own anything. <laughs> the globulites up there actually own everything. Yes. They even own Earth. Sorry, I, I guess we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I guess they won't respect the certificate that said I own this part of the moon. Yeah, guess not. But at least, like, it was only, like, those were only, like, 30 bucks, and they were just a novelty thing. These NFTs are selling for millions of dollars. They are, uh, to ridiculous amounts, although, thankfully, this next ludicrous lead-off we're going to talk about is not in the range of millions of dollars, although it is still ridiculous, still silly, and this came across my newsfeed and made me think, ah, oh, Yes, this is the the story where, yes, NFTs have jumped the shark, assuming they hadn't already. But yes, NFTs perhaps have finally jumped the shark. And what made me think th think so was this story that Miriam, Miriam Webster's, the dictionary people, uh, they are getting into the NFT business uh, on the OpenSea platform. And what they are doing is auctioning off an NFT that is a definition of NFT. Now, what they're selling is actually a GIF. It's uh, just an animated little thing. That's fine. Of uh, the the letter, it looks like something done with like '90s animation, or it was pulled from like a '90s CD-ROM game. It, it's it's not the greatest animation in the world. I'll tell you that. So, if you're going into this thinking like, "Oh yeah, I'll have some slick definition presentation of uh, of what an NFT is by the by the definition people, Merriam-Webster's is going to look all cool. No, it does not. It sure does not. Uh, but it is a gif of letters popping up that say NFT and then a dictionary opening up and going right to the entry for non-fungible token with the ensuing uh, definition of non-fungible token. At least with this... They're doing it kind of tongue-in-cheek, and there is a charitable charitable cause behind it. They're not doing it simply 
for their profit of the Merriam-Webster's organization. Instead, proceeds from this auction uh, will go to Teach for All, which is an international network aimed at, that is uh, meant to and helps to improve and expand access to education. However, if you are the purchaser of this NFT, that is the definition of NFT, you do not receive a tax break because you are paying monies to receive a thing. There's no tax break involved. It's more just a straight-up purchase, and your funding will go towards and be put to, put towards the organization Teacher for All. So uh, we don't quite know if the charity received Ethereum, if they received actual hard-earned dollary dues, but the uh, the auction for this did not exactly uh, achieve sky-high heights that we saw earlier this year with the $60 million piece of art being sold as an NFT. <laughs> Also, for what it's worth, you know, I just went on the OpenSea website, saw the video. It's actually an MP4 file that they play there. I just downloaded my own copy of it. Bypass the middleman. What? You thief. Because You scallywag. I'm not a thief. That's how the internet works. That's how (laughs) things on web pages. There's nothing stopping you from saving copies of your own files just to be like, hey, I have a copy of this file now. Like maybe it's maybe it's an age thing. I don't understand. Like I literally don't understand. Like and also this is this is totally worthless to me. Like it's on my computer now. I'll probably delete it in a couple of minutes, but it's here. <laughs> now what do I do with it? The same thing you do with any MP4 file or something. It just kind of sits there. You might post it on, you know, some friend's wall on Facebook. You might, you know, upload to Twitter. You might do whatever. Like like that that's <laughs> I don't understand why you need to spend money on so, like I don't like I get that you want to like this is a plot, a potential platform for supporting creators and stuff but is it who is like anyways maybe this is just you know one of these generational things that I just won't understand now because I'm apparently too old yeah, it, uh, age kind of crept up on, uh, both of us, uh, right there. And just the bottom dropped out. It's like, oh, we just do not understand things anymore. But at least, as I said, this is not selling for the millions we saw earlier this year, uh, in some ridiculous, au- ridiculous auction. At the time, uh, the two of us are looking at this page. There's just one offer put forward for this NFT video file, animated video file, uh, which amounts to roughly $76 US. Yeah, so someone gets to say they they own it? I, no, like, again, you downloaded the MP4 file from the site. Yeah, but I have so many other questions of like, if this other person owns this file, what legal recourse do they have to stop me from posting it or linking to the original page, like it will still theoretically exist on this page or maybe, you know, in the internet archive somewhere. Does this person get to say, Hey, you're not allowed to post this video anywhere because I own it. Is that a thing? I, I don't know. Well, well, uh, but if you saved your own copy of this file and were doing things to it before the auction closed and before the person kind of came away with any sort of claim to this file, would they still be able to to stop you from distributing? I don't know. Yeah. 
These are all the questions that, of course, we do not have answers to because really no one has answers to. I don't know if NFTs can be understood. Yeah. I'm going to throw it out there. I I don't think they can be understood. There will be... There will be some interesting think pieces in the future by by future civilizations written about NFTs and the blockchain and Bitcoin and, and all that. And basically how humanity burned down its own planet to get more electricity to just continue the mining of digital assets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a stupid end we'll come to. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Also, we can get more Dogecoin. <laughs> Hooray. Wasn't it worth it all in the end? No. <laughs> no, you're I don't right. think it will be. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd prefer to be alive than right, but you know, that's... Well, you can't have both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Sorry to say, but you can't have both. But uh, turning our attention back to things actually tangible and video game related, which nine times out of ten is the MO of this program. Well, being a bit generous with that. Seven point five out of ten times is let's the MO. Say six out of, let's say six out of ten times these days. <laughs> All right, but it's a solid six out of ten. Oh yeah, it's a super solid sixty percent. <laughs> we ace that sixty percent. <laughs> hey, that's a passing grade. Damn sure is. <laughs> Many times it saved my ass. Hey, C's get degrees. Hey. And hell, you can't even spell the word degree without a D, so. There you go. D's aren't as bad as people make them out to be. So, (laughs) booyah. Uh, Boom goes the dynamite. But back to actual video game related business. Uh, Report coming down this week that uh, we should not perhaps be surprised that uh, some companies are looking into creating their own Switch-like handheld device, given the ridiculous runaway success that Nintendo has had with their Switch handheld. That, of course, goes between being a device you can play in your hand and something you can dock to your televisions and set and continue the gaming experience there as you sit in the comfort of your couch, your chair, whatever the space might be. And then again, take it on the go with you on the bus, on the train, on the plane, as you're waiting at a doctor's office, whatever the case might be. So anything that's popular, there's going to be copycats. We know this. We've been around long enough to to see it happen. However, the real surprise came when the article from Ars Technica kind of said who the company behind one of these uh, knockoffs might be, or or not a knockoff per se, but a company trying to get in on their own version of it. And the article from Ars Technica said that Valve is actually currently in active development of their own Switch-like portable PC that is uh, designed to run a large number of games via this the Steam PC platform and could quite possibly launch by year's end, assuming the supply chain actually allows for it, which the supply chain is kind of uh, cattywampus at this moment in time. Yeah. Just, just the general supply chain of everything is, uh, is all up in the air. It's like, uh, like a kid took a big, you know, bucket of Lego and just like ripped open the top and just shot it all up into the air and just let it all land everywhere and walked away. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, yeah. COVID. I mean, it's been a weird year for the supply chain between the COVID thing and that that whole nonsense that happened with the with the oh the ever given with the, the ever given out. there. Yeah, so <laughs> it's been a weird year. It has. So there's no guarantee that this Valve uh, version of the Switch will release by year's end. Uh, although they, uh, according to Sam uh, Makovich, uh, writing the article for Ars Technica, this is what they what they have, and this is what they're working on. It is what is being looked at, and this kind of supported something that Gabe Newell. Uh, Gave an answer to you. Give, gives a bit more light. Sheds a bit more light on something Gabe Newell spoke uh, codedly about uh, a little while ago at a panel conversation when he was in New Zealand, uh, or perhaps, I guess, not in, but doing a remote conversation with a New, Le- New Zealand school earlier this month. Uh, apparently there, according to the article from Mars Technica, Gabe Newell dodged a question that was asked of him regarding Valve's plans for future console video games. And instead gave an indirect answer that said, quote, you will get a better idea of that by the end of this year, and it won't be the answer you expect. You'll say, aha, now I get what he was talking about, end quote. <laughs> so why would Valve make games when they can make machines that run video games? I thought we were going to say, why would Valve make games when they could make money instead? <laughs> Which they have been doing with Steam. So why why do anything when they could just continue to do very little and then just keep being a giant company? <laughs> Which is also a fair question, I'd say. Yeah, a very fair question. So <laughs> we don't really have any greater details than that beyond that uh, Valve is... Looking at this, apparently the reporting is that this is a device that's been in development for some time. Uh, how long exactly that is, we don't know. Valve is a privately held company, so they don't really ever have to disclose anything they don't want to. History has borne that out. Yep. Look at the development of Half-Life 3. <laughs> exactly. So uh, so it's not clear if Valve is going to release uh, multiple uh, SKUs, multiple versions of this, uh and offer, you know, options to people if what they want of power level, display type, or specs or anything of that nature, if it's going to be modular or whatnot. But apparently, it will keep the uh, one of the main Switch uh, features and be able to, quote-unquote, dock with uh, monitors, perhaps TV screens, with a uh, over a USB Type-C port. Yeah. So, that will be, of course, an important feature uh, that it will need to have in order to actually be considered Switch-like. So, yep. Uh, no idea how long, how much this is all going to cost. No idea, again, uh, which I'd imagine uh, part of the determining factor in the cost of this device will be supply chain and parts and the, you know, ready uh, availability of parts to put in here. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I mean, it, there's also like a lot of different um, interesting questions that this raises. Like, will this literally just be like big picture mode in like a handheld fashion? Like, if anyone's used big picture mode, they know what I'm talking about, where it just kind of tries to let you know Steam be run kind of like a video game console, where you can just use it 
including navigate through it using just a video game controller, like an Xbox controller or something? Will this just basically be an integrated Xbox controller or those haptic touch controllers, I guess, that they came out with a couple years ago? Or, you know, what, what other features will this have? Will, like, will the dock, you know, let you hook up a mouse and keyboard? Like, is this really intended more for like a, a living room type setting or is it just really intended to be sort of more a PC that you can also kind of take with you? And will there be like accessories like a portable keyboard, portable mouse, things like that? There's so many questions I have that I'm sure will be answered eventually, but not right now, I guess. No, certainly not. And, uh, God help you. If you're looking to Gabe Newell for any sort of answers, he, uh, never discloses anything publicly. No, he, he doesn't like to give answers to questions. He prefers to just kind of move along. Yeah, pretty much. Even if you ask him for, uh, to, to find out what he had for lunch that day, uh, he would, uh, not really give you a direct answer and just move along and, uh, end the interview right there. Yeah, pretty much. Even if he's eating, like his lunch right there in front of you, and you ask him, oh, what you got there? It's like, is that a shawarma? Next question. <laughs> this interview's over. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then Valve Security come and escorts you out of his office. Yeah. Even though it's a remote Zoom call, they still escort you out. They literally come and rip out his computer and uh, webcam and just toss you out the window. <laughs> yes, out the window. After taking you up several stories, just to make it more dramatic and or... Um, injurious, <laughs> if that's a word. Uh, I believe that's known as message sending. Yes. <laughs> you made the mistake of asking Gabe Newell what he was having for lunch. That was the last time you asked Gabe Newell what he was having for lunch. Uh, yes, or anything else. <laughs> or anyone else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> But speaking of the Switch and reports of things related to and around the Switch, there has been reporting, uh, unconfirmed, obviously, to this point, uh, reports dating back years that uh, Nintendo will uh, eventually release some kind of upgraded version of the Switch handheld, which I think the internet and uh, just the gaming community as a whole has taken to calling the Switch Pro for lack of an actual proper name to call it by, the Switch Pro is a uh, better way of conveying the idea that this is an upgraded model that, you know, we we widely suspect is coming. Nintendo has, an history, has a history of kind of doing refreshes and updates to their systems that they release, with, I think, the lone exception being the Wii U, where Nintendo just kind of gave up on that and put all its focus into the Switch. But, you know, the Wii got, uh, you know, later in life uh, refreshes, um... The, actually, no, the GameCube didn't get one either. I don't now, think the N64 got one either. No, actually, no. Now that I think of it, it's kind of uh, 50-50 whether or not Nintendo does a uh, mid-system refresh. Yeah, I mean, the original Nintendo got one. The Super Nintendo got one. N64 didn't get one. GameCube didn't get one. Well, GameCube, well, I mean, new copy, new editions of the GameCube got released that had less connectors and stuff on the back, but still had the same form factor and same guts fundamentally. Um, we had one. Yes, uh, where we, where functionality and hardware was taken out. Yeah, Wii U did not have one. I mean, Game Boy, Game Boy SP, DS, they all had... That's a whole other thing that we can get into, but we don't... We're not going to because that's a whole, 
you need a flow chart to kind of show the, you know, the, the progeny of which device comes from which device kind of thing. That's a whole complicated mess that we don't need to get into, but yeah, mainline systems. Yeah. It's about 50, 50, I'd say. Yeah. But, uh, the, the widely held belief is that Nintendo will refresh the, the switch handheld at some point. They already of course have released the, the, uh, slimmed down version, the switch Lite. And the reporting coming out this week, first by Bloomberg and supported by Eurogamer's own sources, is that Nintendo will, in fact, announce an upgrade and a new model, an upgraded model of the Switch prior to E3 2021. So E3 this year is middle of June. And if Nintendo is planning, as these reports and sources would say, planning to announce it prior to E3, that's only a couple weeks. That's only about two, three weeks away between uh, now and then. And the impetus, according to Eurogamer's sources, as reported on by Tom Phillips of Eurogamer.net, is that if Nintendo can come out and announce this ahead of E3, then their development partners, who have games in development for this new version of Switch, can then use that time, uh, I guess at E3, to then show off their games and what they have in development for the new version of the Switch. Yeah. Uh, Bloomberg's reporting, uh, says that this new version of Switch will be released sometime in, in September or, or October and will be sold alongside the Switch Lite. However, this Switch Pro slash upgraded Switch model will eventually re- uh, be a replacement for the current version of the Switch. So the one that we know and uh, have enjoyed so far, you've enjoyed so far that many people have, uh, will be phased out in and replaced by this Switch Pro, which, uh, would likely be sold at a higher price point in no small part because of the cost of parts is going up. Yeah. Again, supply chain, whole bunch of issues. Not really going to get into that. But, uh, the other reporting is that, uh, Nintendo is likely to go into I believe uh, manufacturing with this uh, Switch Pro sometime in the summer. And it's expected, according to Bloomberg's reporting and Eurogamer's uh, reporting, that they may not have as many problems with supply chain and manufacturing issues that we have seen the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 run into because they're using different parts. Yeah, though, I mean, I... I well, hopefully they don't hit the same... Supply chain issues. I mean, part of the supply chain issues that are happening, I think, with the the PlayStation Five and like the Xbox um, Series X, are probably mostly because of. Well, I mean, if you try to buy one on any website, it'll be snapped up within like literal seconds of it becoming available. And I think that's in no small part due to bots trying to keep things purchased so that scalpers can also sell them at a greater rate. Though I don't know what degree of success those scalpers are having with selling things at a greater rate these days. Maybe it's still viable, but hopefully Nintendo doesn't also fall victim to that. But that's just a kind of other thing to worry about, I guess. Uh, true enough. Certainly something to uh, keep an eye on, but, uh, it sounds like, uh, at least according to, uh, both Bloomberg and Eurogamer, that, uh, we could actually hear something and maybe see something about an upgraded Switch Pro model in the next couple of weeks, 
which there's been reporting and scuttlebutt on this for years at this point. Uh, and the timing actually kind of works out because the uh, Switch at this point is over four years old. Yeah. Which is kind of wild to think that it's uh, that it was initially released uh, March of 2017, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but also is that long ago? Time still being a blur. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And uh, yeah, this perhaps is even a bit later uh, than uh, Nintendo and other companies may have refreshed their uh, properties, their hardware systems. We've seen Sony and Microsoft both in the last generation do mid-cycle refreshes on their platforms. The the Xbox and the uh, PlayStation getting getting pro slash upgraded models of those yep. to to some extent uh, with sales success or whatnot. Uh, now, th- in those cases, the upgraded models did not replace the baseline standard models. No. So, so that is what would be happening here. Uh, my concern with this being something we saw with Nintendo in the later years of the 3DS, where they kind of had a hardware division once they came out with the new Nintendo 3DS XL. Uh, they were using different chipsets and different uh, processors, which I believe uh, some games could only run on the new Nintendo 3DS XL and not previous versions of the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah, which, you know, is fine if you don't treat a new system like an extension of the old system, which is why I'm a little bit concerned if they go that route, you know, rather than just saying it's not the Switch anymore and now it's the the next one, if they don't go that route and if they say, oh, no, it's it's just the, the Switch, you know, 2 or whatever, and it, you know, you can still play Switch games on it, but you know, new games being released will still be available on both. Then it just really, the lines start to get blurred, you know, as opposed to like the division where you're like, okay, these games are for the PlayStation three. These games are for the PlayStation four. You can't play PlayStation four games on PlayStation three. It's a different system done. Like love it or hate it. At least, you know, there's no confusion there. No, that's true, and that's uh, something we have to credit Sony and the uh, naming scheme of their PlayStation hardware uh, with, is that each one is a distinct standalone generation, and you can easily tell and delineate what goes where. Yeah. So, uh, if there is a new version of the Switch to be released later this fall, uh, that uh, certainly would be a big tentpole in Nintendo's uh, holiday shopping, uh, holiday retail plans, but uh, they did release some details on titles, actual pieces of so- software that will be big tentpole releases for them this fall. Uh, some new, quote-unquote, Pokemon games to help drive sales of the Switch, as if it needed any help. Uh, but they released the, uh, or gave the release date, I should say, for Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Pokemon Shining Pearl, the Switch-based remakes of Diamond and Pearl from the uh, DS days, slash 3DS days. Uh, those two titles will be released in tandem on November 19th of this year, and with a third Pokemon game, Pokemon Legends Arceus, being released on January 28th of 2022. So, two new remake Pokemon games, or two quote-unquote new remake Pokemon games coming up for the Switch. So, you know, kids and other people can uh, have those as presents. And then the person, if they get some Christmas money, they can spend it on Pokemon Legends in January. 
Yeah. So like, just as a reminder, um, we've already talked about this a few weeks ago or, or a few months ago, even probably now, but Pokemon Legends Arceus, in case you are trying to remember what that is, it's an open world game, uh, based on or set in the feudal past of the Diamond and Pearl Sinnoh region. Uh, yeah. So some early gameplay shows it kind of looking kind of comparable to Breath of the Wild. Uh, if Breath of the Wild was filled with Pokemon for you to catch as well, which seems pretty cool. So yeah, feudal past of, it's an interesting way to release it too. Just kind of, here's these two games and we're going to release another game that's based in the same area, but hundreds of years previous. So you get to see where it came from. Yeah, you do. It's uh, it's an interesting tax and uh, unique for Nintendo's approach for this fall. And uh, also too, I did uh, read that, if you so want, you can buy a double pack this fall, because Nintendo will be releasing it, a double pack that contains both uh, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. So yeah. you could buy both games at the same time, which would eliminate the need for uh, uh, worrying about one over the other, and also the sales charts having one being sold higher than the other, even though they are fundamentally the exact same game. <laughs> yes. Which always happens with Nintendo games. So... Uh, yes, uh, Diamond and Pearl, as the article in front of me reminds me, those were games from the, for the Nintendo DS and originally came out in 2006. So 15 years old, uh, I think a good time to, uh, have a remake and Pokemon Legends Arceus. Uh, what intrigues me about it again is the open world battle system where you're not taken into a separate, uh, battle screen. It's everything just happening real time right there on the world map, which, uh, it's a very interesting approach to it. Yeah. I mean, it should be cool. Uh, it should be. So uh, we'll bring you more details on that as they come out and come forward. But uh, Nintendo is certainly hoping that those will be big money makers for them later on this year. Uh, but speaking of big money makers, uh, Microsoft is going to be looking to recoup a whole crap load of money in the years ahead to uh, uh, generate and recoup what they spent buying Bethesda to the tune of $7 billion. Yeah, and when we first heard about this, we kind of had a suspicion that they would just kind of keep operating uh, as business as usual because I would imagine that a lot of the valuation for Bethesda was based on them basically being, you know, making games that are available multi-platform. You know, so... Their money and stuff is coming from the fact that you can buy a game anywhere. PC, um, you know, PlayStation, Xbox, doesn't really matter. So we figured, well, it probably makes sense for them to just kind of like, they, they might want to have, you know, you know, a, uh, an exclusive here and there, but generally probably not. They probably want to just in, in the interest of casting a wide enough net, so to speak, they probably would have just, still continue to release games for every system. You know, maybe take the same approach that they've been taking with Minecraft. It looks like maybe that might not be true. No, with new reporting coming out this week that is suggesting that in one specific instance, uh, Microsoft will be looking to keep uh, a new Bethesda title platform exclusive to them. Uh, the detail, well, not much of a detail, but the statement coming from games reporter Jeff Grubb, uh, who tweeted out uh, earlier that, quote, Starfield, 
is exclusive to Xbox and PC. Period. <laughs> End quote. Okay. So this uh, also being quoted by uh, news website GamesBeat. And if the suggestion holds, then Starfield, what was shown off a couple E3s ago, and I mean, realistically, it wasn't really shown off. There, there was a 30 second tease of something, but it was primarily just traveling through space, perhaps a hint of a planet as well, but no real idea what the hell is going on with the game or what we can expect as a player. Just simply uh, a thing to show off. Hey, we're Bethesda. This is something we're working on in the future or for the future. Yeah. Okay. That was also the same E3 where they showed off uh, the uh, teasiest of teases of the next Elder Scrolls game that showed a little bit of land and some houses. And then, then the internet said about trying to figure out where the hell the next Elder Scrolls game is going to be located. Yeah. But uh, Starfield, if this holds, will be exclusive to the Xbox NPC, uh, and your thoughts on that, on Starfield, at, as of this reporting, and should this reporting hold, being uh, platform exclusive to Microsoft uh, Xboxes and uh, PC platforms? Well, I mean, my thought is maybe it makes sense for them to do this. I mean, Starfield is a wholly new property. They got in fast enough to, so just in case Starfield has the same potential of an Elder Scrolls or a, you know, Fallout, for example, if it has that same potential, they could at least maybe establish, no, actually, it's never been released anywhere else, so there should be no expectation of it being anywhere else. So I think that's perfectly reasonable for them to do. However, you know, it does kind of, I can't help but think that this does call into question any future Bethesda games, but I can't help but think that like given the built-in fan base of Fallout and the Elder Scrolls, that they might be a little bit, you know, hasty if they decided to make those um exclusive as well, given the preconception and like given how like, you know, there's almost guaranteed sales to be made if they release it wider than just on the Xbox. So it's hard to say. Like, I guess I'm okay with them holding this one back, hopefully making it, you know, a system that becomes an Xbox seller, perhaps. So. Now, I yeah. wonder if the uh, – I'm sure Microsoft and their actuaries and accountants, uh, left, right, and center, have, have crunched the numbers and uh, done the research – to determine, but I'm not entirely sure if, uh, as a platform exclusive, if something like Starfield, which is a wholly new entity, um, will recoup its production costs. Because at the time it was initially shown off, the, I guess one of the, the, the pitches on the part of uh, the Bethesda executives at that time was that Starfield was going to be a, a big, uh, major AAA release on the part of Bethesda, which then means it's going to be a very expensive game to develop. Now, being platform exclusive to PC and Xbox, uh, obviously you're cutting off uh, parts of the gaming public, gaming uh, market that will pay for your game because uh, they might be interested, but uh, they'll only want it on PlayStation 5. Uh, now, I, I, I can't help but wonder if 
Microsoft will actually make the money back that uh, they paid to go into the development of Starfield uh, and subsequent releases, or are they going to take that as a loss? And that's fine with the aim being that uh, uh, of building up the catalog of games exclusive to the Xbox. Yeah, I mean, well, mind you, we also say exclusive. To be fair, the fact that it's available, like, it is available on two platforms. Like, PC is a very healthy platform. So, I mean, Xbox aside, the fact that it's still available on PC, I don't think is that restrictive, to be fair. True, true. So... So it's not like they're saying it's an Xbox exclusive. Like there, it, in a way, it's still kind of a multi-platform. So it's it's not really exclusive. It's just kind of exclusive. So that I think it's not necessarily going to be that hard for them to recoup their cost if you look at the PC market as well. So true enough. Uh, on consoles, it's it's exclusive to the Xbox, but yeah, maybe it's also the PC. It could just be a calculated risk that they're willing to take of like, well, no, like, forget the PlayStation, like, we'll recover our, you know, multi-platform losses through PC sales then. There. Done. Uh, True. And then uh, I'd imagine we'll see later releases, such as the next Fallout, such as the next Elder Scrolls, being multi-platform for the reasons uh, you you accurately described earlier, that those are uh, properties with entrenched fan bases on multiple platforms, multiple systems, and that have histories and expectations of being available multi-platform. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this one, uh, time will tell. Also, time will tell what the hell kind of a game Starfield actually is. We know nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, none of the footage we've seen is actual gameplay footage. <laughs> like, we just, we know it's set in space, and that's about it. Yeah, the the teaser trailer, I think, for Starfield a couple of years ago showed off uh, even less than what the teaser trailer for the next Elder Scrolls game did. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. At least with Elder Scrolls, we saw some... We saw the side of a mountain basically being panned over, essentially, and that apparently for some people was enough to you know start the, the theory train going of, like, where in, where in uh, the world is this taking place? <laughs> So, I don't know, like, that that at least tells you a little bit more, like, it's not a snow-covered mountain, so it's a, it's an Ireland-looking place, maybe, I don't know, like, where in, where in Tamriel is that? I don't know, hmm, as opposed to outer space, where it's like, oh, it's outer space, which is just sort of like, that's too big of a thing, like, who knows what that could possibly be. Yeah, they uh, might be setting it in a uh, different quadrant of space, of space, you know, a different... Uh, uh, but a different quadrant from what, even? <laughs> I mean, who knows? True. Uh, so if you try and triangulate where the, what the hell was shown off in that Starfield trailer, uh, based on the stars in the sky or whatnot, good luck. Also, you probably can't. They're just randomly placed there as backdrop. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll find out more at uh, E3 this year as Microsoft has uh, already staked out a date for them to uh, do their own virtual presentation slash song and dance slash running of a pre-recorded video. Uh, you know, everyone following in Nintendo's suit, especially this year. Uh, 
but uh, as Microsoft has announced that they'll be doing a presentation uh, in conjunction with Bethesda. So it'll be a combined Microsoft Bethesda presentation for E3 this year. Yeah, which I mean makes sense. No, oh, absolutely. So we'll have more details in the weeks ahead. In the weeks ahead on that, but uh, one last news item we'll get to this year again. E3 this year going to be a virtual uh, presentation. No people allowed. Uh, no physical aspect to it, and that can be a, a whole debate and discussion for another day. Uh, but uh, uh, various conventions still uh, experiencing the effects of the COVID pandemic. Uh, Blizzard announcing this week that BlizzCon 2021 is not happening. Uh, they cited the health and safety considerations uh, with putting on an event, a large-scale mass gathering event, uh, indoors in an enclosed space, as well as the fact that uh, quite often they have uh, attendees traveling from across the globe, different parts of the globe, uh, not only attendees, but perhaps some of their Blizzard team members from uh, studios and, uh, I guess, work offices, uh, around the globe, and perhaps that's maybe not the best idea at this current moment. Maybe it's not allowed because of various government uh, regulations and restrictions. So Bethesda has announced that instead, BlizzCon will go ahead in 2022, and their aim is going to be for that next year's show to create a global event that combines both an online show and smaller in-person gatherings. Of course, Plans for that next year's event will be shared once they have been solidified slash when they've actually been worked through and uh, fleshed out. But uh, if you were looking forward to BlizzCon, perhaps as being your chance to get back to some normalcy later on this year with all the upheaval that the COVID pandemic has caused, eh, going to have to wait a bit longer. You also didn't mention the terrible name that this online BlizzCon was given. Ah, uh, did because I gloss over that? Yeah, um, yeah. So this BlizzCon is <laughs> it's moving to an online event, um, and it's being called BlizzCon Line, <laughs> which you got to appreciate. It's a I I like a bad pun, but it is definitely a bad pun. It, it is a bad pun. I mean, it's one of those names where you're like, okay, well, yes, I accept it. It's a bad pun. We have to use it because it's so obvious, but it's still groan inducing. Yeah, absolutely. BlizzCon line. <laughs> so, like, the, the the only thing that was going through my head when you were mentioning all of this stuff is, like, I can't help but, you know, think of, like, I've been to a few conventions over the years, and, you know, part of the experience I've had is, you know, when you come home and when you're done with all the travel and, like, you know, all the hanging out with people and stuff, you tend to kind of, like, there's a high probability you'll catch something, be it a cold or something from it. You know, one of my friends, I've heard him refer to it as uh con flu before, right? So it's like th there's always sort of a, you know, this risk slash aspect to potentially getting sick at a convention anyway. So I can only imagine how much worse it would be with this <laughs> in COVID times. So... Yeah, it's something to think about and or, you know, be cautious of for conventions moving forward anyways. Uh, certainly. I wonder if uh, one of the safety protocols we'll see in place for future conventions might be uh, that attendees uh, must be vaccinated. Yeah, but then that'll, you know, I'm sure in some like portions of the population, that'll raise a whole lot of other questions and like, you know, blah, 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 human rights, this and that. 
Well, uh, true, but if they're a private event, uh, you know, they they could point to it as a health and safety protocol. Yeah. I, I mean, this is that will be one of the other aspects that will be sorted out and worked through in the future post-COVID times when we eventually get there. Yeah, exactly. No. Some parts are getting there slower than others. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. As someone that doesn't want to unnecessarily get sick or as someone that just generally doesn't want to get sick, I don't like being sick. If I can avoid it in any way possible and if, you know, other people can help me avoid it and can help everyone else avoid it, that'd be great. And you speak as someone who kind of has a history of getting sick after traveling. Yeah. This is I this mean, is what I've uh, come to learn and uh, know in the times we've traveled and also just hearing of your travels afterward. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I came back. Oh, yeah, and you came back and brought something with you. It's not just a souvenir. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if there's been one nice thing, like maybe I'm just prone to catching colds and flus and stuff or whatever, you know, but maybe it's a rundown immune system. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? But, you know, th- this whole past like year and a bit – you know, as for all the bad things that have, you know, that quarantine and whatnot has, you know, brought, I haven't had a cold a single time and it's been great. I haven't really gotten sick at all this whole time. Who knew the, the only problem was other people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Who knew the problem was the general public? Huh. Yes. <laughs> All right. You know, this is this past year has really just uh, strengthened an argument for uh, being a hermit and just avoiding people at uh, uh, all possibilities. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're just one step closer to having that cabin in the woods just cut off from civilization. <laughs> yes. Living off the land, taking what nature gives you. Appreciating exactly. the simple things. <laughs> Painting happy little trees. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Just basically being Ron Swanson, just off in the woods somewhere, just, you know. Anyways. I mean, yes. was he wrong? Was he living a bad lifestyle? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Work for him. I, I dare say his uh, joie de vivre was uh, pretty high up there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but let's move off that and instead uh, take some time to turn our attention to things of yesteryear. We're going to reminisce now in the segment that we like to call The Blast from the Past, the portion of the show where we take some time to reminisce, wax nostalgic, and uh, speak about things celebrating milestone anniversaries that we think are worth talking about, either because they're things we've enjoyed or they're things that are just so ridiculous and wacky that they deserve mentioning and talking about. Uh, we have three items this week, and and full disclosure, uh, they're not necessarily current to this current date and time when the show is being posted slash when you're hearing it. These are items we would have spoken about had we done a program last week. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's okay. I mean, it, there, it's, it's still relevant. We're only a week out, so. Exactly. And, uh, they're still weighty enough that, uh, they deserve discussion here on this particular week. So we have three items. One of them is a movie. Two of them are TV shows. The TV shows being of, uh, different ages. But, uh, of those three particular items, where would you like to, uh, turn your focus to at this moment? Uh, we could probably go with the newest of the three. Maybe we'll shoot our time's arrow backwards in time until we eventually hit up the oldest one. 
All right, the the Times Arrow uh, making its first stop at uh, May 23rd, 2001, for that was the day that uh, the final episode aired of uh, what was at that point the last of the Star Trek programs, for it was the end of Star Trek Voyager, the last of the, uh, yeah, the uh, up to that point, the last of the three syndicated uh, Star Trek uh, series, and uh, the second one that followed in the wake of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, I mean, it was shortly followed by Enterprise, but that one also kind of, it took everyone out of that whole comfortable, you know, world or universe, really, that was built up by, first by Star Trek Next Generation, then by Deep Space Nine, and then finally by Voyager, you know, because those three series, um, all took place during the same time period. In fact, there were references to, you know, Deep Space Nine and the Enterprise and stuff across each of the series. I think there even were handoffs at some point, like, like, almost like, um, symbolic handoffs when one series was starting off. You know, I, I think Voyager might have actually launched its mission from Deep Space Nine, from what I recall. And um, and I recall the start of Deep Space Nine got a handoff from Next Generation. Yeah, like Picard was kind of like the one who handed off, you know, the mission to Cisco to, you know, talk of how important this and that was, blah, blah, blah. So there were those symbolic handoffs. And then because they were all at the same time, you know, there were references to each of the different, you know, Characters from each of the, the series might make appearances here and there, like, you know, Loaxana Troy. Um, I don't actually know if she necessarily appeared in Voyager, but, um, her voice know, did hear about her voice. Well, yeah, of course, <laughs> Majel Barrett was the voice of every computer. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, Voyager, definitely the weakest of the three, but still interesting. I mean, I I watched all of this all of the series. I mean, there was a point in time, you know, when you know I I I'd made a concerted effort to actually get through all of them when they were on all on Netflix kind of thing. So I, I watched them all from start to finish, you know, just to make sure I was kind of like, you no, know, it was a sort of a goal of just like, okay, I actually want to see all the Star Treks that were like the ninety Star Treks that were available, and I did, and I can definitely say Voyager is the weakest to me. Deep Space Nine is the strongest series, like the the deepest characterizations and all this other stuff. But I think Next Generation has my favorite episodes, is the way I would put the three. But Voyager like, was very interesting and weird because it was so inconsistent. So inconsistent with how some characters were written and with, you know, clearly the different ideas that people had where they wanted the series to go. That's my big takeaway that I, I gleaned from watching the series because when the ep- when the series starts, I mean, you end up, like, you see, like, uh, Captain Janeway, played by Kate Mulgrew, she was a very, very much a stickler for these, you know, the prime directive and very rules based and blah, 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 which ended up, like, she could have kind of ignored the prime directive and got her entire crew back, but because she thought, no, I have to uphold the prime directive, she basically marooned all these people out 70,000 light years away or something, which, you know, basically 
made them, you know, it's like, oh, actually now our journey is a 70 year journey back to earth. So you're stuck here basically, which one could argue eh, you're marooning like hundreds of people. Maybe you could probably, or maybe thousands of people. I mean, it's never really clear the scale of how many people are on a starship might be thousands, but yeah, it's like, maybe you could issue the prime directive, but no, right from the start, they set her up as this, you know, stickler for rules. But as the series goes on, she ends up committing all of these, like, you know, um, she, she gets visited by, you know, uh, what is it? What's the name of the people section 31 or something or, um, the temporal, there's some agency that they made up because of this series, because Janeway has the most, um, temporal prime directive violations. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. There's like, it's like, why is she so inconsistent? Why'd they make her so inconsistent? Like if she was such a stickler for like, we have to uphold our ideals and this and that. And then on occasion you'll see, like, I don't remember what episode it was, but I think it was something involving Ensign Kim. He was basically like, well, that would go against the prime directive. And then she was like, ah, you got to break the rules sometime. It's like, <laughs> where was that attitude on the first episode? Like, what the hell? My and son- then like a couple episodes later, it would just be right back to like, no, you're blah, blah, blah. So it's like, well, why is she so inconsistent here? Like people didn't know how to write this character. Uh, and my sense of uh, Voyager at the time, too, in watching it was that it tried to go back to a lighter tone of series that there was in Next Generation, uh, given some of the darker tones and themes we saw in the storytelling of Deep Space Nine. It seemed the, the producers want to go back to that uh, uh, perhaps lighter vision of the future that there was in Next Generation. But yet at times they'd have some darker episodes, I guess, uh, eschewing to the influence of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And it, yeah, I mean, and I found in watching it, it was, it was kind of harder to watch the, these, you know, lighter, you know, tonally lighter, uh, more accessible stories in, in Voyager, just given the, the weight of storytelling that there was in Deep Space Nine, almost got spoiled in a way for the, the darker stel- storytelling. Yeah. Darker storytelling that was dark. It wasn't unnecessarily dark. It was just dark because that's the, where the story ended up going. It seemed also like Voyager, like really pulled some stuff out of the air just to make it seem like, well, it has to be dark now, even though it, a lot of the times it wasn't. So yeah, I will say though about Voyager, I did, I did think that they had some of the more interesting time travel episodes out of any Star Trek series. Because for some reason that's a staple of a Star Trek series. There's got to be time travel. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, though I think my favorite, my favorite time travel episode still is either the one where they brought in Next Generation, they like accidentally brought Mark Twain on board, <laughs> or or the episode where in Deep Space Nine they basically inserted themselves into the original series episode, the trouble with tribbles. Ah, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, they, they didn't really do any 
thing like that with these with uh, Voyager, but they did some very interesting things involving like what happens when you know communication is out of sync by a couple of days and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Had a couple of interesting episodes, but and also I, I do appreciate how they kind of explored the Q continuum a lot more in Voyager as well. Like they really, before that Q was basically just like a ridiculous, like chaotic force that would just kind of come in and create chaos. And like the episodes would be silly and ridiculous, but you actually got to see why Q was the way Q was in Voyager, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, wasn't there an episode where there was another member of the Q Continuum who was basically fighting for his right to die? Yeah, exactly. So, interesting ideas, um, but wildly inconsistent in its execution. Yeah, and uh, for some reason, uh, just Voyager struck me as almost having slightly lower production values than Deep Space Nine. Like it came across as a slightly cheesier show and perhaps that's, uh, you know, having watched Next Generation and then watching Deep Space Nine and then seeing, oh yeah, this is, you know, what a Star Trek show can be. And then returning to something similar to, to the spirit and likeness of Next Generation. I don't know. Maybe that's just how it struck me in that moment watching it. But, uh, I mean, the Voyager ship was meant to be a science research vessel. It wasn't a big battle cruiser like the Enterprise was. No, exactly. Uh, and they were literally just a science team on a science mission who then got flung like a thousand, was it a thousand or a million light years from home? It was 70,000 light years. 70,000, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that being said, Star Trek Voyager still had a very successful run lasting seven seasons, 172 episodes, and had one of my favorite characters in all of the Star Trek series, that being the holographic doctor. Yes. As played by Robert Picardo. Yeah, the holographic doctor, or the doctor as he was just called, was great. Like, he was a, it was an interesting, um, he was kind of a bit of a throwback to Bones McCoy, in a way. Even though I know in TNG they, they tried to make, um, uh, what's her name? The, the second series doctor when Dr. Crusher went to- uh, Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, McCaskill or something? Yeah, something like that. I know they tried to do that with her, but you know, it wasn't really, they inserted her into this situation that was already set up. Whereas Voyager, he was, you know, they, they basically recreated it from the start, which is the way you kind of have to set up that type of thing. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a great character. I, I did really enjoy the character of the, the doctor. Very entertaining. And, uh, uh, Oh, Dr. Pulaski. Pulaski, that's right. There yes. we go. Uh, Dr. Pulaski, yes. So, uh, yeah, Robert Picardo was great as the doctor. Um, Neelix was enjoyable at times too, I have to say. Um, as, but the idea of having a chef on board, uh, Voyager seemed like a ridiculous concept. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you, you can literally whip anything up with your technology, but you need a chef. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not going to say that every bit of Voyager made sense. I can't <laughs> do that. Cuz there was a lot of Voyager that didn't make sense. But, you know, 
it was still enjoyable. I'll, I'll give it that. I, like it didn't like not every episode was great, but it was still enjoyable. True. It wasn't, uh, perhaps it wasn't as, uh, as an unbearable or hard to watch as I found, uh, the follow up series Enterprise to be with, uh, Scott Bakula. Yeah. Although that's a different discussion for a different day, but, uh, moving off Voyager, we'll move our time arrow, uh, backwards again, and that will land us back on, uh, May 23rd, 1986. As we're now going to talk about a movie that is one of the best movies to come out that year, one of the best movies of this particular actor's filmography, uh, we are talking about the movie from 1986, simply known as Cobra. Yeah. So <laughs> what often happened, I think, in the 80s was you had these big bankable stars like that made action movies, you know, but they each had their they own they each brought their own thing to the action movie that they would be in. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, was, you know, like a very charismatic, albeit, you know, not the most typical leading man. Cause he was a huge bodybuilder guy had, you know, very kind of quick on his feet with, you know, his uh one liners and stuff. And, you know, he would, he would bring that type of energy. Like anytime you'd need a huge muscle bound guy who could just be basically intimidating and like deliver not a lot of dialogue, but you know, very effective goofy one liners really seriously, that'd be him. You had, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone, who is basically like similar, but you know, maybe a man of fewer words, uh, not, not as fun, but also a lot more intense, but similar kind of idea. Like, you know, the, the key with all these guys being like, you know, very muscle bound and very like macho and intimidating and stuff. And they're all known for one liners, but there's like a different flavor of the one liner. And then you also got like the crossover when you had like comedy guys come in, like Eddie Murphy also became like, had a little period of time when he was a, a, uh, bit of an action star, you know, with Beverly Hills cop and, you know, 48 hours and things like that. And then there was a few of these other action movie guys that would pop up like Kurt Russell and, you know, uh, Bruce Willis and several of them. But anyways, the point of me bringing all this up is that sometimes you would see, um, one of these action guys would see the success that another action guy would have in a different type of movie. And then you could basically just imagine them going to a movie studio going, I want to be in a movie like that. Like it, it definitely happened. Like, like that's, I think that's where commando came from when he pointed to, uh, like first blood and or Rambo, like Schwarzenegger pointed to those movies and went, I want to do that. And then they're like, okay, Here's your, we'll make a version of that for you. And here it's called commando. There you go. Like for Sylvester Stallone, I think Cobra was him pointing at Beverly Hills cop going, Oh, I, I like the idea of like a renegade cop that plays by his own rules and, you know, has one liners and is just kind of like, you know, is kind of like at odds with the force because there's a lot of corruption and blah, blah, blah. I want to do a movie like that. So then he got Cobra as a result. 
I don't know if that's fair to say, but that's the impression I get. Yeah, yeah I can, I can see that. Uh, I, yeah, still Cobra being Stallone's Beverly Hills Cop. Um, and it's a completely ridiculous movie because it's, yes. it, it, it's kind of the ultimate send up of like eighties action badass cop movies. Like it's taking all the tropes and just like throwing them all at the wall and just running with it. Yeah, I'd say Cobra is to the 80s badass cop movie what Commando is to the 80s, like, badass military movie. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's fair. So to to watch Cobra now, it's a ridiculous movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, was this the first time we saw Brigitte Nielsen with Sylvester Stallone in a movie? Uh, may have been. I, uh, I, I can't say I'm, you know, that terribly up on Brigitte, ne- uh, you know, have been or continue to be up on Brigitte Nielsen's filmography, but, uh, uh, she, she was, uh, one of the co-leads in this movie. Uh, but the real star of this is Sylvester Stallone. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like from the get-go, the opening scene has him trying to defuse a hostage situation inside a grocery store. <laughs> Yes. Now, you wouldn't think there's uh, a lot of room in there for one-liners or just uh, ridiculous scenes, but they find a way. The writers, producers, directors, and Stallone all work together in tandem to make this as ridiculous an 80s action cop movie as they possibly could. Yeah. Like, right in that whole sequence, it's bananas, because, like, he goes in, like, there's... I don't know if he's actually designated to be the, the hostage negotiator... But whatever happens, he goes in basically all guns blazing, you know, like hiding behind fruit stands and things like that and get, getting on the, uh, you know, the, the intercom system of the, the grocery store. And what does he say? It's something along the lines of like, Hey, dirtbag, you wasted a kid. Now I'm going to waste you. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's your negotiating tactic just to rile the guy up and make him scared. And then when he's going through the produce section, you know, he's kind of, you know, keeping a low profile so he can't be seen. And he, like, there's one thing where you see him, he he grabs an apple and takes a bite out of it and then throws it away. It's like, was that necessary? He just stole an apple. He's a cop. What's he doing? It was in the line of duty. It's okay. (laughs) But even, even beyond that, as he's kind of engaging this cat and mouse game, slinking around aisles and whatnot, he comes up to uh, the end of an aisle where I believe uh, on the end cap of the aisle, there's a, a display of beer. I think it's like Miller, it's Miller High Life or something like that, or Miller yeah, Daniel yeah. Craft. Uh, and he just sees and notices the display of beer. He helps himself to a can of beer, cracks it open, takes a sip and just tosses it away for no rhyme, no reason other than to demonstrate to the viewer he's a badass. Yeah. He's a cop who drinks on the job when trying to defuse a, ne- a hostage situation where a child's life is at risk. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, they, they, they went out of their way, I think. This is one of those kind of also things that would sometimes happen in these 80s movies where they tried to make the lead seem badass. And when you look at it through like, you know, 30 plus year old eyes. Like when you look at it from a lens that's 30 years later, it doesn't work that way. And it just seems funny. Like 
there's a scene like also immediately after when he was driving home and he's trying to, I'm, we're not just going to recount the whole movie. I really don't remember a lot of the movie, but just a couple of the highlights that pop out in my head, like afterwards when he, after he, you know, parks his car and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, he pushes, you know, some, you know, street thugs car out of the way using his car and the street thug, you know, rightfully gets mad because it's like, Hey, what the hell, man? Like you're just literally like, did a bunch of damage to my car just to park your car. And then like he basically rips the cigarette out, the cigarette out of this guy's mouth and goes, those things are bad for you. And then, <laughs> then the guy goes, what? And it's, it's like, wait, what things? And then he goes, me. And he just grabs the guy's shirt from the collar and rips it all the way down. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, that just makes you seem like a jerk and less of a badass. And then when he's in his apartment, for some reason, he pulls like, you know, a box of like day old pizza or something out of his fridge. And for some reason, like, you know, rather than just eating the piece of pizza, cuts the piece with a pair of scissors. Like that makes him look more of a badass. And then just like has the little piece he cut off with scissors. It's like, what was the point of any of that? Like, that's a weird thing to just include in a scene. Like that doesn't really add to his character. It just seems weird. And then after snipping off that piece of pizza, because this is him coming home back to his, uh, his, his bachelor apartment, uh, cause he lives alone cause he's just such a badass. He doesn't need anyone else in his life. Such is the commitment to his job of being a badass cop sits down, eats the piece of, uh, snipped off pizza, then grabs the egg carton from the door of the fridge, pulls it out, sits down in his, uh, comfy chair, uh, or sits down at like, if not the comfy chair, he sits down at the dinner table, opens up the egg carton to reveal that it's not eggs inside, but instead it's uh, implements and tools for cleaning his gun. Yeah. He keeps his gun cleaning tools inside the egg carton in his fridge. Yeah. Why do you keep that in, first of all, in the fridge? <laughs> like, is that the best place to, like, hide this thing? <laughs> Do also, do you need to clean a, do you need to hide a gun cleaning kit? What's the point of any of that? You're not hiding a gun. It's just a, it's, it's literally like pipe cleaners and stuff. It's weird. It was just a brush and some other stuff, but he basically just took out the brush and was cleaning out the barrel of, uh, like the silencer on his gun. Also, one other thing I just want to mention, his name is Cobra, but his full name is Lieutenant Marion Cobra Cobretti. <laughs> so his name is Marion Cobretti, which is a ridiculous name, by the way. I'm just going to say that. Totally ridiculous name. Well, they probably came up with the fact that they wanted to call this character Cobra and the title of the movie to be Cobra. Then they had to work backwards, backwards from there, realizing that, okay, Cobra can be his nickname, but what's his real name? It's got to be something that could loosely lend itself to Cobra. Cobretti. <laughs> yeah. Don't know if they got well, that Italian, by looking he's through an a Italian book. guy. Yeah, he's an Italian guy, so it, it has to be something Italian sounding. Oh, Cobretti, that, that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Great. And it did work. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, movie goes on. He ends up uh, fighting against, uh, like, some weird cult uh, that... Um, is in the movie, they, I think, kidnap a bunch of people, and then they, the, like, the, the last fight takes place in one of the most badass scenes could be. It takes place in, like, a, uh, a steel mill. 
or like an iron works mill or something. There's just like yep. sparks flying everywhere and just like intense heat coming off like the liquid metal everywhere. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a, an attempt at a totally badass fight that it seems entirely unnecessary, but hey, whatever. And also the uh, the villain, as played by Brian Thompson in this movie, uh, for some reason his character has a uh, knack and pension for just smashing axes together above his head. <laughs> yeah, and him is his him and his whole cult. There's a whole like extended scene that goes on for I think a little bit too long. <laughs> when you know there's like. 45 people just in rows in front of him doing this whole thing where they're just clanging these two axes above their head rhythmically in like this weird arrhythmic kind of pattern. It's not even like following like, you know, like some like constant pace or something. It's like clank, 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 <laughs> clank, clank. It's like, what are they doing? <laughs> like they're not saying anything and they're all just kind of standing there doing this. <laughs> and I don't know. We might sound like we're shitting all over this movie. It's super enjoyable. It's a fun movie. <laughs> it's worth watching if you like this type of movie, which I have a suspicion that, you know, if you're listening to us, you probably do. Both of us do. Like, I don't think that's any sort of secret at this point. <laughs> no, we've both watched this movie and we, en- we enjoy watching it together to point out the ridiculous things and scenes in it because yes. it's completely ridiculous. It is. It does not take itself seriously or if it did, then it took itself too seriously and crossed over a line to be uh, to the point of becoming ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. So it is worth your time to watch uh, as an artifact from a different era of movie making, Cobra, starring Sylvester Stallone, uh, which leaves us with one item to talk about in the blast from the past. That takes us all the way back to May 23rd, 1981, for that was the uh, last episode to air of this just looking back on it, kind of a bizarre piece of uh, primetime comedy, telev- primetime television comedy, uh, but uh, that was the date for the last airing of The Muppet Show. Yeah, so, um, yeah, in the, the Muppet Show, if you don't know who the Muppets are, you have to have been living under a rock at this point. Though, admittedly, in the last few years, there's not really been a lot culture-wise going on with the with the Muppets, but there was a good 20, 25-year period, at least that I can recall in my lifetime, that the Muppets were kind of like, not front and center, but just definitely like a constant thing in culture, um, whether it be, you know, for adults related through the Muppet Show and, you know, various Muppet movies and stuff that spun off of the Muppet Show, or, but, or arguably more, more prevalently for children through Sesame Street, um, amongst other, you know, later shows like Fraggle Rock and what was it Between Two Lions and Between Two Lions. A- uh, there was also the uh, Muppet Babies animated series too. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I think like sort of like the the place where it kind of like Muppets became legitimized for a lot of like adults was the Muppet Show. Like, even though Sesame Street, I think, came out around the same time, um, and, you know, there, there were, the, the, the common thread between the two was Kermit the Frog, who would make appearances on Sesame Street, but Kermit the Frog was, you know, the quote-unquote showrunner of The Muppet Show, which was a weird, 
the conceit of the show is very, I, I want to say it's a little bit ahead of its time because it was from a time when shows like, you know, Laugh-In or, you know, Hee Haw or whatever else were kind of popular, you know, like a, like a, like a multimedia kind of like musical review slash comedy experience type show would be a valid show that's on. But the Muppet show was meta because it, you know, like, it was like the making, like the behind the scenes of that type of show. Like you got to see that type of show, but you also got to see what they were putting out to be what went into making that show. And all the drama behind making that show became the show. All done and told through the use of hand puppets. Yes. In the 1970s. <laughs> like that seems like the kind of thing that you would have now. But this happened like 40 years ago. It did. Again, television at that uh, point in time was uh, a bit different, as you pointed out. Shows like Laugh-In, Hee Haw. Uh, but there was a number of variety shows. Any any big enough celebrity had their own variety show. I think there was the Dean Martin uh, variety show. There was the Sonny and Cher show. The Smothers Brothers had many incarnations of their variety show. Yeah, Johnny Cash even had one. Johnny, like- Johnny Cash had one. Yeah, every network had their stable of stars with their own variety shows. Probably because they were really cheap to produce um hell you could even point to like something like the carol burnett show as being a variety show sketch based yeah. but also with some uh, musical acts built in between uh and that's what a variety show was it'd be sketches uh celebrity appearances celebrity cameos some musical performances it was just kind of everything it was a, a not uh serialized uh, television program done for entertainment and comedy purposes like once a week so but then there was the Muppet Show version of it, which fit right in in the 70s, but seems, as you pointed out, wild. And, like, the concept of it, when it was pitched, seems like it would have been born out of a fever dream. Yeah. But, like, I think the most important thing to take away is the fact of the – it felt behind the scene Because that it came out in a time when television was very much trying to be – like, trying to put out – a polished version of what they wanted you to see. Like you never got to see behind the scenes. The closest that you would see to that is like, you know, sometimes unscripted antics might happen on the tonight show when a comedian might say something that Johnny Carson wasn't expecting. And then everyone on the show is actually laughing their ass off. And you know, that must be, that must be what the Muppet show was kind of based out of like that whole, like unrehearsed part of it. But at best, like, you would see things like SNL and stuff, and yeah, there, I'm sure there was crazy behind-the-scenes antics that would happen, but none of us as viewers would ever be privy to any of that stuff. All we'd get to see is the sketch itself or the final version of what they wanted to present being broadcast out. But the Muppet Show, pull, it made, like, part of the show itself was pulling the curtain back, so you got to see their version of the craziness, even though it gets meta because... <laughs> That is what they wanted to show us, obviously. Like, it wasn't like, we didn't actually get to see, because it was done through puppets and stuff, we didn't actually get to see, you know, Jim Henson and Frank Oz possibly arguing with each other or anything like that. But, you know, we saw characters that they were playing having all these, well, frankly, probably scripted arguments and stuff (laughs) that probably mimicked all of the things behind the scenes in shows at the time. So, yeah, super meta and super ahead of its time. Oh, absolutely. And the crazy thing is, uh, through all of that, it actually worked. Yeah. 
Like it worked well as a series, as a, as a, as a television program that was attempting comedy, it was really funny. And even though it came out in the seventies and lasted up until the early eighties, you and I would see it uh, on reruns on television. Oh God. Uh, up until the nineties when we were coming up and watching TV, uh, yeah. you know, before school, after school at night, whatever the case might be. And it was really funny then even to younger versions of us. Yeah. Now, we didn't get or understand uh, maybe all the jokes, uh, all the celebrity references or all the cameos or whatnot, but what was easy to understand was you have this silly character being silly and doing funny things and saying funny things. Yeah. It worked. And uh, on the one hand, it worked. On the other hand, it, it, you know, it seems like the, the Muppet show in the 70s into the 80s was kind of the high watermark for the Muppets as a franchise. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I mean, until they really got into making movies, because they they also made several movies, right? Like, you know, like the Muppets take Manhattan and, you know, even like the the Muppet movie, I should say, is like the first one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if, like, it, it almost felt like a weird, like, um, just a version of what they were trying to recapture on, you know, the Muppet show. Like, yeah, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that was the high point that, uh, what launched the Muppets into the public consciousness and, uh, that in combination with Sesame street. So you covered two ends of the spectrum. You had, uh, you, you know, Muppets playing to a young audience. You had Muppets playing to their parents on both Sesame street and the Muppet show. Yeah. And like it, it, it all works be, and it all seems very genuine because it makes sense to, to just basically have a show for children that's all puppets. It might make less sense for you to have an adult puppet show, but when, you know, there's like parodies of like very, um, you know, relevant current references to like, you know, TV shows and movies and, you know, when you actually see like guest stars, like real people, like how, like I, one of the ones that I remember seeing was like, they actually had real musical guests and stuff on the Muppet show. Like they had like Alice Cooper on once. Like that's, it, it, it lends this like certain weird air of legitimacy to the show. It does. Uh, Alice Cooper. I think John Denver was on perhaps more than once. Um, yeah, musical guests, like actual name celebrities of the time, would appear on the show. So it'd be like, hey, this isn't just its own unique, distinct puppet universe. Like it, it bleeds into the real reality of things. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the Mub Show, like I said, may have been been the high watermark uh, up until. Well, I mean, they kind of came back with that uh, movie, The Muppets. Uh, Oh God, that feels like it was almost 10 years old at this point. It probably is. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but since then it's kind of been uh, a hit or miss ride with uh, the Muppets property since then. I think, uh, Disney tried doing a series on ABC in the vein of The Office, but with the Muppets called like Muppets Now or something. And it didn't quite work. I think that one was actually just called The Muppets. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Muppets Now, I think, was more like last year, but the Muppets was from 2015 on ABC. That was like, 
Yeah, it, yeah. They even had like the office font for the Muppets, for the logo. Um, but yeah, they they tried Muppets now, which I think was it's just like small shorts on Disney Plus, from what I recall. I think it's still technically going, but okay. Yeah. I don't know. Well, fair enough. But uh, still, if you've got Disney Plus, uh, as I know you do and, and many other people out there do, uh, you can watch the old Muppet show. Yes. And by the way, the Muppets film, you know, uh, starring Jason Siegel is actually 10 years old now as well. Huh. So, or it will be in November. So <laughs> that was a while ago. On the one hand, thank you for the confirmation. Uh, on the other hand, God damn it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, nevertheless, The Muppets. Yes, The Muppet Show uh, ended May 23rd, 1981, after uh, five seasons, uh, several episodes, several many episodes. Uh, but if you're looking for exact number, it's 120 episodes. So there you go. But uh, yes, from the heyday of The Muppets. So that, uh, that's all three of our Blasts from the Pasts that we have now expanded on, uh, spoken extensively about, uh, traveled through time, given our thoughts on, but we want to hear your thoughts on all of them. Uh, have you watched Cobra, the 80s action cop badass spectacle that is Sylvester Sloan in Cobra? Uh, do you miss The Muppets? And or did you enjoy Star Trek Voyager? Was it your favorite of the uh, of the three '90s Star Trek series? Let us know your thoughts on any of uh, any of those things, and then some. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up through social media. We are at the Arcade Show on both Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't done show, done so already, do yourself a favor and subscribe to this program. We are on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So that about wraps us up for this week, and we thank you so much for joining us once again, and hope you will join us again next time. So until then, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 